0: Poker's legendary champions, next-generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson.
1: Welcome, 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 my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson, and today's guest on CPG is high-stakes cash game crusher, poker coach, Twitch streamer, and YouTube content creator, Richard Ginge Shields. As you well know from my past conversations with Nick and Patrick Howard, Matt Berkey, Matt Marinelli, DGAF, etc., when it comes to cash game pros who are also high-level thinkers, My opinion is totally biased and compromised. I just can't help but love him, and Ginge totally fits the bill. Whether it's discussing simplicity on the other side of complexity, creating content, or building out coaching programs, Ginge and I are about to throw down, so prepare yourself to get pelted upside the head with an avalanche of greatness bombs. In today's episode with Ginge Poker, you're going to learn why it was pretty much destiny that Ginge pursue poker at a high level, why you ought to think long and hard about the career you spend your life force pursuing, the story of how Ginge was almost locked up in Thailand, and much, much more. So now, without any further ado, I bring to you high-stakes cash game crusher and poker coach after my own heart, the one and only Ginge Poker. Jinj, welcome to Chasing Poker Greatness, sir. How are you doing this are you morning? having me.
2: I'm good, man. Well, this evening for me uh, nah. in Thailand.
1: Yeah. 9 so, p.m. All relative, 9 p.m. Wow. So <laughs> it's 10 a.m. here, 9 p.m. for you. Um, yeah. how, how is Thailand right now?
2: Uh, it's pretty awesome. Um, we basically had it to ourselves for the last two years, which has been incredible. Just seeing like the whole, like people love Thailand anyway, but imagine going to see it with like going to these crazy beaches where normally like hundreds of people and you're the only people on the beach is it's pretty special. It's never going to happen again in my lifetime. So I'm pretty thankful that I've got to see all that. Uh, now people are trying to like come back. And honestly, I'm, I'm already getting annoyed by it. <laughs> I'm like, no, this is my place now. But, you know, I can't complain. Um,
1: you're I've originally got... from Thailand. You don't look like you're originally from Thailand. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, no. Um, no, I'm from England uh ended up here about four or five years ago and then just basically never left off and on going back to england and traveling for poker and stuff um but time's been pretty good to me during covid um hasn't been as archaic as some countries basically they have a rule here where if the cases get too high they just stop testing people so that's pretty good for the numbers because they only get so high and then no one worries about it anymore um
1: <laughs> wow and then, and, so they cook the books
2: so yeah they do yeah and then uh, and it's pretty cool because um they're pretty slow at cooking the book, so you can kind of see what's about to happen. So you can see that like one province is about to close down. Uh, so it's like, okay, I'm just gonna leave that province and I'm gonna go stay in this province, and, and then uh, oh, and then r- rinse and repeat, basically. Um, so I've been fortunate enough to like live all over it now, so I know it quite well. Uh, but yeah, as I said, things are opening up again now, so we'll see how it goes over the next few months. I think as of November, literally in a few days, I don't know if this podcast goes out. Uh, how how soon this podcast goes out? But like November, everyone's just basically allowed back in as long as you've got two vaccines. So We'll see what happens
1: so we have a mutual friend that also lives in thailand and i've known yep. many people in the poker world that have moved and stay in thailand what is it about thailand that is so appealing to young professional poker players
2: um well the community aspect is definitely there i don't know how that started per se but it's like i think first of all it's cheaper it's warmer so when I first came over, um, it was because some of my friends had traveled here and one of my friends who was playing like 25 and hour, 50 an now we're just like, I'm just going to get an apartment. I'm going to play 25 and 50 an now I'm going to go and live by the beach. I'm going to go to the gym every day. Cause there's a nice fitness culture here. And like, without sounding ridiculous, like all oh, the girls like me more here. And it was just like, why wouldn't I want to do that? And I was <laughs> like, well, that sounds good. I want to come try that. And then for me, I went from like a pretty reasonable job. I, I, I went through a lot of jobs, finally got like a pretty good job. And I found that even though I was making decent money, I just had no time. I was always tired. And I just ultimately decided that even if I ended up in Thailand making $1,000 a month, I'd rather do that than have the $3,000, $4,000 a month and then not have any time to myself. And yet I get to live in Thailand. Um, and potentially, well, fortunately for me, it's gone better than that because I've improved. And obviously things have gone well for me in poker. But for me, I was just like, yeah, I'd rather take that. I'd almost rather, it was. I would rather take that sacrifice and end up there. Then through that, ended up in the community, which helped me get better at poker. Uh, the lifestyle was amazing. guess um, just like, I, I, I don't necessarily love the sun, being a pale ginger person, but I like going out um, at the night when it's warm and going out in my short and T-shirts at like past six o'clock because it's like, it's quite warm here. Um, the food's fantastic. Uh, everything's a lot cheaper. You're living in a big city. So for example, if you want to live in London, which I did for a little bit, uh i was in what you call zone four so the way london works like the center is like zone one and it gets further and further out so zone four i'm paying like stupid money to live there even though it's zone four i'm paying stupid money on transport even though it's zone four and like i live in the middle of bangkok and i'm paying i would say i could quite happily like happily have a great time on a thousand dollars a month and like when i'm playing 100 zoom making probably an average of two thousand dollars a month I'm, I'm living like a king it was amazing
1: yeah that Again, sounds like thousand thousand dollars a month um living a good life yeah the girls like you more sunshine eh, on the beach food, food. food. yeah i Travel. i guess I could see the appeal i guess if i look yeah. hard if i look hard enough and closely <laughs> enough, I could see the appeal um let's go back to okay let's go back to the beginning um of your journey into the poker world right so Tell me about your life and then entry into the poker world and how old are you so that we can like set the timeline?
2: So I turned 30 about two months ago. So it's 2000. I was born in 1991. It's 2021 now. So I'm 30 years old. I can't believe I'm saying that. But uh, I actually- Don't, don't I worry. It
1: only gets worse from here.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I actually introduced poker very, very young. i like three years old because my mom and dad uh, both used to play even like seven card stud uh, in like pubs and clubs and stuff. So I was like, really into cards growing up anything from like bridge all the kind of card games that most people probably haven't even heard of he's playing my in my family home i was always terrible at poker but i used to always want to listen to my mom and dad's stories when they came home from the casino they tell me all the hand histories and then 2003 2004 when everything boomed they were having home games every night at my house um not every night but every other night and sometimes i have to play so i'm playing poker at home from the age of like 12 13 14 um I got a fake ID at sixteen, so I could go to the casinos and I'm uh, playing the casinos. Let's go back a little bit.
1: Why? Okay. Where did your parents? Where were your parents introduced to poker? Like, it's clear that they were playing poker before the boom.
2: Yeah, so they, my, my family kind of grew up in like pubs and clubs. So, like, my dad was like a manager of a pub. My mom uh, worked
1: in the pub. Could you kind could, of? Could you them. tell me about the pub atmosphere um, sure, for pub. folks in the states that? don't really have a, uh, aren't able to visualize what, what the pub life is about.
2: Well, imagine like, a just a venue with like tables and chairs a little bit, very, obviously would have been very smoky back in the day. Would have been darts, pool tables, um, that kind of thing. And then was just pretty custom for people. My dad would be, my dad was actually number one in the UK at pool. Uh, he's actually a really like renowned pool player. So my dad would play pool for money and my mom would play cards for money on the side. So they paid very small money at the start, like, uh, like a few cents uh, in the games and stuff, but it was something for my mom to do when my dad was playing pool. And eventually they just turned into like, oh, my dad's actually really good at pool. And he's like, not hustling, but like making several more money than he's making his job playing pool. And my mom was like tipping, you know, making money playing poker. And they're like, oh, we can make a little bit of money doing this. It wasn't necessarily like their profession, but enough to go from like minimum wage to, you know, covering the bills and paying for baby food and paying for baby clothes and all this kind of stuff. As I was, as I was, as I was growing up with my brother and stuff. So, I don't know. Is that, does that give you enough picture of that?
1: Yeah. It sounds like you're like second gen professional yeah. gambling family.
2: Yeah, pretty much.
1: <laughs> so um, so no, you've made the family proud with your chosen career path?
2: Uh, yes, because my mom is very, very open.
1: And like, this is an interesting
2: story that will come up in the future. My brother plays professionally too. And we clash quite a bit when it comes to poker to the point of like, you know, almost like didn't talk to each other for a long time. You mean Mainly strategically,
1: strategically clash?
2: Yeah, I would say strategically um, and I guess mindset wise and I guess a few other things as well. But we, we both kind of like grew apart how we approach the game. Um, and I do believe that was, I think there was a bit of sibling rivalry that kind of came from him a little bit where he didn't want to necessarily play poker the way I played because he wanted to make his own way in poker. And then the more advanced you get, the more you kind of like say, there's only one fundamental way to play poker. I mean, there's different variations of some bits, but only one ultimately. And we argue about that for ages, but he's gone more down the tournament route and I've gone more down the cash game route. So he's in Vegas now playing the world series, which is pretty cool. So I I like following along and, but we just don't talk about poker anymore because too many arguments.
1: Uh, did you say younger or older brother?
2: Younger. So he's like 95. So what does that make him now? I should know that 26.
1: Yeah. So chip on his shoulder. Um, Chip on Yeah, his shoulder. I think it
2: was there for a while. And I think he wants to like, because I guess I always, I guess with poker, you kind of always measure your success a little bit based on how much money you've got. And he had way more money than me when I was coming up in poker for a long time. And in my head, wrongly so, because he'd binked some tournaments, like some really big ones, like he had one tournament score for like 180,000 pounds, which is like, what, $250,000 and like that. And he had a large piece for himself. So he's got, his net worth is just like six figures plus. And I just there like grinding, grinding, grinding. And then I end up in Macau and I'm getting staked to go and play in these Macau games. And in my in my head, I've like earned my chops a little bit. You know, I've gone from 200, 500 Zoom and I'm grinding with like some of the best online players. And I'm like ready now, because like the guy that stakes me like rates everything they do and I'm ready to play. And then my brother turns up, in my opinion, just getting kind of semi-lucky, binking in a few tournaments, turns up and then proceeds to almost decimate his bankroll and i'm just there like brandon stop playing poker like you're playing badly like stop like it's and then he starts jumping in the plo games he goes oh yeah but i think i've been how do you know you've never played plo you have no sample of plo this is ridiculous like why are you doing this and and then my mom's but my mom's side of this is let him do it he'll learn like what's the worst thing that's going to happen he's going to end up home and broke and like he'll be home and he'll learn from it and then my my side it's like why don't we tell him to not do this before he goes broke and this (laughs) was like uh like a, a big clash because the problem we had a little bit was um, his friends or mutual friends were like, oh, you're not playing that bad, Brandon. But they almost said that because they were being like nice and they didn't want to cause any arguments because they could see the argument we were having. And my side, it was like, you're playing terrible. Stop playing. Yeah. And the more I said that, the more I was like, I'm going to prove you wrong. And then it was just this whole situation where it's like, he ended up going home and then he ended up like losing a lot of money. And that was sad to see, but you know, I feel a little bit partially responsible. I don't ever take full blame because Ultimately I think the responsibility falls on himself and it was a lesson, but we haven't been quite right since that situation.
1: Yeah, that's it's a tough spot. I remember yeah. when I was like twenty four or so, I had a had a friend who I came up in the game with who was by all measurements, especially then a better player than me. Just yeah. exceptional card player. The way that his mind worked and thought about the game was I mean, in my experience, pretty unparalleled, but had some tilt and mental game issues where go start losing and all of a sudden you're playing all night long and you dust off your whole bankroll, right? And it was like, you know, technically better than me, fundamentally better mindset, not so much. Um, And I remember one night he played all night long. He had lost like 15K and had like, 26k in his account or something like that, and I think he was playing. He was playing. I used, I can't remember exactly the stake he was playing. Maybe fifty hundred limit uh, heads up or 2550 limit heads up, something like that. And I remember telling him like, "Yo, let's go get some breakfast. And if you don't get breakfast with with me right now, like I'm gonna unplug your computer. I'm gonna trash it in the parking lot, and you'll thank me for doing this in a week because you are." 1,000% going to dust off your bankroll if you don't just stop and go to sleep. And um, yeah, it's, it, it's tough. It's a thing that God. you cannot overcome. You can't overcome yep. it as a poker player. You just can't. doesn't matter how skilled you are, you will always end up broke. You will spin up six-figure bankrolls and you will run them straight to the ground every single time. Um. And with that, you know, let's go back to you. <laughs> let's go back to you. You're 14 years old, um, <laughs> battling. Uh, you're learning from your parents. Poker is a big part of your life. Uh, was poker just part of your life, like going through school? At what point? You yeah. mentioned you had a job before you went to Thailand. So I assume you weren't playing poker at that point.
2: Yeah, so poker was just big for me since probably the age of 14. I was probably known at school as like the... Not the poker kid, but like we started a poker society at universe, at school. Like this is like under eighteen. This is like 16, 17, 18. and we got to play at lunchtimes. And I was always the the best player at school, whatever that means. And then, um, and then we actually uh, we had a we actually ran a business competition in school where we actually ran a poker tournament as the business, which uh, some of the teachers weren't happy with. Um, but whatever, one pound rake, one pound buy, so we're one hundred percent rake. Uh, <laughs>
1: we made a lot of money. Beatable. And then, Easy. Uh, um, <laughs>
2: yeah and then ended up at university so played a little bit when i was 16 but not really because i was a bit scared using my fake id and to be honest i'm still quite bad at poker i just didn't realize how bad it was ended up at university first year was a lot of partying but playing some poker uh and actually it's a funny story i'm in the casino and i'm not 18 yet and they're looking for dealers and i'm going to university and i would like quite like a job and they're like yeah you can work in uh, these times we'll fit around university and it's all good uh, why don't you fill out the form now? I'm filling out the form. I'm like, oh shit, I can't put my date of birth on this because I'm not 18. Yeah, I've got to wait till next week. To, I had to make an excuse and be like, no, no, i fill out the form. We can do the interview. And I'm like, ah, I'll fill this form out next week. I forgot my national insurance number my passport. And I'll have to do
1: <laughs> You know, but they're going to um, know in a week, right? It's still
2: there. Uh, it's one of those big companies where like, I think the, uh, the, the HR department wouldn't have known me, but the staff would have. And then they wouldn't, uh, you know, two and two wouldn't have been put together. But so I ended up, start, I started working there while I'm at university. But then I, I'm i working every weekend. And that's when all my parents, uh, sorry, all my mates are going out. And I've got a reasonable amount of money now because I'm doing this job, which actually paid, didn't pay too bad, especially for a student, because um, it's like unsociable hours, all this kind of stuff. And you get a few tips. Tips are terrible in the UK, by the way. So I'd never recommend being a poker dude in the UK. Um, they don't tip and you get minimum wage. So don't do it. But um, but then all my mates are going out at the weekend. I'm just knackered for my Monday lectures because I'm working nights. And then so I had some money saved up, but then had no social life. So I ended up leaving that because I'm like, well, I'm at university, I want to actually enjoy it. And then I played a bit of poker, so my poker kind of like topped me up, so I didn't have to like dip into that too much. Um then second year, uh started running the poker society at university, um, which is pretty cool. Um then got a girlfriend who hated poker.
1: Um, a so class, classic and, tale. why yeah. she hate poker? I
2: think, well, th- this, I'll tell you the full story because this kind of leads up to how we probably broke up, to be honest. Um, so second year, a lot of poker. Towards the end of second year, got with her. Third year, no poker and then i'm starting to slowly run out of money because i'm like why, why am i running out? oh yeah i'm not earning money anymore of course I, of course i'm slowly running out of money now and then it wasn't until like um my 21st birthday obviously a huge birthday um i'm having like a big family party and a lot of my family and friends are into poker as well so i'm having a big family party and then i'm having the, the casino where i used to play poker i said like, Will you run like a private tournament for me where i can get all my poker friends to come Just a small buy-in Just for fun i'll do the structure we'll do something fine and then like anyone who knows me because most of my friends are the poker friends wouldn't have necessarily come to that, but they would have come to like this, this tournament for fun. So I said to her, would you like to play in that? And I'll, I'll obviously stake you. It's very small money, like $40 or something. Um, and I'll teach you the rules. I'll show you how to play and it'd be fun. And I want you to see that kind of thing. Cause I don't want you to see like, it's this dingy casino. I want you to come in have fun. And she said something like, so if I go to the casino with you, what will I be doing next? Taking my clothes off for money. And I was like, "What do you think I do? This is ridiculous! <laughs> it's such a big disconnect between, between like uh, what I actually do and what you think it is." And I just I couldn't get over that. And I think yeah. um, shit got real.
1: Shit got real very quickly there.
2: Yeah, um, I was like, "What the hell is this? this? Is like, what do you think I go to strip clubs like? What? what like that didn't come until later." But uh, which, <laughs> <laughs> which the thing is, so if someone if you just said to me at the time, like, would you choose girlfriend or would you choose poker? A hundred percent, I would have chose her. But because she made me choose between like her and poker, I, couldn't, I could never choose her. It was always going to be, well, it doesn't matter. That I'm, I don't care about poker that much right now. It's more the fact that, like, what the hell happens in the future? I'm just finished university. She was already kind of, like, cutting off some options. She was like, oh, you can't really move to London because I'm from the north. And, da, da, da. and I'm like, well, right now we're in a financial crisis and it's, like, 2000 and I don't really think that I, I'll take any job I can get right now. Like if it's in London, I'm going, you know what I mean? Like this is my career. It's my future. I can't like go, Oh, I'm going to look for only jobs in the North. So that didn't work out. Um, but then actually it didn't do very well in my degree, mainly probably because I was playing poker. Um, What'd you get so a degree in? in uh, economics. Ah. Actually, my dissertation in poker. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a master's thesis on this game called three card poker, which is just a really, really simplified baby version of poker. And then for my Station. I just added a card into it, which made it exponentially harder. But I got to follow basically his premise of how he did it, and just do all the maths. And that, that was the only thing I actually did pretty good at university. So I was like, yeah. So everything kind of was leading to poker, right? Yeah. um
1: All signs point to uh, poker, besides the girlfriend. Yeah. But
2: yeah. So after university, naturally, I uh, went and worked in a betting shop because that was
1: basically the first job I could get. um Betting shop and, is sports betting, I assume. Yeah, like a bookmaker. So like William Hill. I think you got that in the states now, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. We, we've always had it. I, actually, William Hill, I think, I think it's, we're we're progressively moving towards sports betting being allowed everywhere and poker being allowed yeah. like basically nowhere <laughs> still. So it's, it's great. Um, yeah. it, it makes got, a lot of sense. Lobbying. Everybody's got a lottery, sports betting's everywhere, pokers in like five states. Oh, okay.
2: Yeah. I've got no idea how that works, but
1: I'm going to leave that to you guys. I'm sure no, it's coming. We don't know either. So you're... Yeah. You're safe I, I, in that, I, I, in that I, territory.
2: I, I, as someone who's part of GG, like I hear, promising things. Obviously, I can't reveal everything they tell me, but I'm, I'm hearing like, yeah, America potential. But I don't know if they just mean certain states or would It, I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty in the know because I know also have people in the industry, but. Yeah. I don't know i don't get my hopes up and basically if they yeah. tell me that something happens then something happens and other than that like i'm not investing energy into trying to figure it out because it's just kind of feels futile yeah i hear
2: basically we need california that's the one
1: yeah but and here, been like hearing that one. for like five uh, again ten yeah. years or so like basically yeah. i think so somebody told me and i have no way of fact checking this but basically like california california is like as it's like bigger than most countries in and of itself, just as yep. like the number of people that gamble play cards and all of that. So like getting California is, you know, that's, that's the, the motherland. The problem is There's
2: one third of your market, apparently California as a yeah. whole of the state.
1: The, the problem is like the, the reservation casinos lobby quite, Oh, right, hard yeah. against online poker, um, because it's going to like cannibalize their business, and they I don't they want could, that.
2: I guess what they need to do is make like a case study where they've got casinos and they've allowed online poker, and it's increased the revenue of the casino somehow. Yeah, so they can figure that and go, "Hey, Mister Indian Reservation man, you see these satellites to run online to your casinos?"
1: Well, they're pro- what, what they're probably afraid of, probably rightfully so, is that like. They, they're they not going to get exclusivity as it relates to the licensing. So yeah. if, if it was just like them running it, I'm sure they'd be like down for it. The problem is like yeah. stars and GG yeah. and party poker and all the powers that be are also going to enter the market. And then, you know, they imagine they're going to get screwed, but I think progress, you know, right now it's just like a stalling tactic. Like, yeah. You just stall. It will happen
2: one day, hopefully in our lifetimes.
1: Yeah, casinos just want to stall because, like, every day that money. It, it doesn't yeah. happen is a lot more money for them. So just push it back as long as humanly possible. Uh, yeah, but
0: anyway, I know
2: everyone hates that Sheldon Anderson guy. But I read a quote from him, which I actually changed my mind about him a little bit, not massively. He said that he doesn't agree that he should be able to um, spend loads of money to affect politics, but the fact that he can means that he will.
1: I mean this is the nature of life. I think as it relates to, you know, predatory behavior on poker platforms, as it relates to like behavior that platforms don't want, I say it's on the platform to create a better process that doesn't incentivize such predatory behavior. Else people will do it, right? Like it's a process problem, not a people problem. And I think like, change the incentives, make sure they line up with how we want the game to be played. Right. Like, this is why tournaments to me are like an abomination. I hate playing in tournaments because players are incentivized to stall, which means yeah. that the game goes very, very slow and is very, very boring. And I hate that. Like, it, you basically just have to change the incentive structure. In cash game, you're incentivized to play fast. Why? So that you can get more hands per hour, so that you you have a higher hourly rate, right? So like the incentives for me as a person align quite well with cash, but not tournaments. But I think there are possible solutions in tournaments. Um, it's just the innovation is not there and people are not trying it out. But maybe one day.
2: I've heard of, there's a few, I don't know what the suggestions are, but I'm hearing more and more suggestions come up with the World Series now. And I feel like that just the a big spotlight on tournaments and people think about these things a lot more. So hopefully... More World Series is down the line. People are really coming up with some good ideas for these, especially the stalling stuff. That that must heal the life out of you.
1: Oh, I don't play them, so <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't really tilt me because I just don't I just don't play them. Um, I, mean, I don't I, I, I don't I watch it on TV either. I just don't
2: do very well in them. <laughs> so I'm just never I'm never at the bit, bit where I need to stall. Maybe that's where I'm going wrong.
1: <laughs> I think it was the year that like I think P.S. Hines won the WSOP. That was the last one I watched 2009? on TV. Something, Something like that. And I remember every decision was like an eternity. And I was just like, this is not appealing to me. I, I quit. I'm not watching I used, this. I used to love
2: watching all the World Series coverage. And then I especially the fan Tale. But I stopped watching the Farned Tale because I don't like watching the, the long live stream. And I don't seem to cut it out into a highlight video anymore. I used mm-hmm. to like watching it by, like in an episode. So I get to see like, I don't know, 10, 10 hands in an hour that I actually like cover. Whereas now it's just like a 12-hour live stream of Farned Tale. like, there's no way I'm watching
1: that. Yeah. I mean, you watch like seven or eight hands. It's fun. Real fun times. Um, (laughs) Let's go back, back to my, uh, away from my grievances with tournament poker and Mm -hmm. your third, third year university. Actually, you'd graduated at this point. You didn't do so well in your career. How'd you find out about Thailand? And did you make that move at the tail end of your career as a, actually your, your bookmaking at this point?
2: Oh yeah, well, say bookmaking—it's just basically what we call a minimum wage job, where people come in, and place a bet, I put it into the computer, and give them the betting step back. So it wasn't anything special. Um, then I decided that London was where I was going to make money, so I was just applying for any job and anything. Um, the first job I got was in recruitment. So if you don't know what recruitment is, it's basically like you'd call up a company, you'd say, "Are you recruiting for anyone? Um, how much would you pay us to give you that person?" And then we'd obviously then try and find the person and look through CVs and try and line them up and then get a fee.
1: Um, yeah, we call them head, just, headhunters uh, in the U S that's
2: a fancy that they're the more fancy ones. So they're like they're, the headhunter in my perspective is someone that's like, maybe you're looking specifically for like executives or mm. like very like niche roles. Whereas recruitment is more just like mass fire. Like, you know, I'm looking for like people working like <laughs> on it call centers. Yeah. Like, uh, and the first three months, so they promise you commission. It's all commission-based because they want someone that's incentivized by money. And I was like, yeah, money sounds good. And, um, you know, but they always, like, promise, like, I moved to London. I'm thinking all my friends are in London. But then I realized that London is just, like, this enormous city. So Ian and my friends are in the same city. By the time I finish work and get to where i got to go, they're on the other side. It's like, well, miles will just be on my own, basically. The cost of living was just so high relative to what I was earning. And I was just like, so then I ended up moving back to Birmingham, which is where I'm from, second city in the UK uh getting to live at home um and then getting the same job for slightly less money but way better because then even though know, my mom charges me rent that i save on transport i save on rent a little bit i save on food um been doing that but the advantage of doing that that was way more fun that one by the way in, in birmingham because that was way more of was like a social atmosphere whereas the one in london was a bit more of a startup um like just like some like guys that were super serious on it and i'm like yeah i'm not really not really feeling this. You promised me commission for three months, and I still haven't got any. And I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it wrong. You've taught me how I'm supposed to do it, and I'm doing it. But and it's a numbers game. But this commission isn't coming for nine months at least. I can already tell. Um, and I can't afford to <laughs> nine months in London. Uh, so end up back in this job. But in the meantime, I've always kind of got a bit of a chip on my shoulder because I haven't done very well in my degree. Um, actually, in London, I was still making money playing poker on the side. Not like like professional, but like you know, playing the odd tournament here and there, live and and like just going. All right, well, that's topped me up for this month. Um, then back in Birmingham, I'm still applying for other jobs and I ended up getting a, a really good job. And the only reason I got this job was because they didn't care about my degree. They cared about all the like, they gave you loads of like numerical tests, IQ tests, uh, team based team building stuff. And they were way more like, they, and I agree with this, but maybe this is because I'm in this position, but I agree that like university education, just isn't really a reflection on how good or bad someone's going to be in a role. And and I think that that they, they saw that because they were, they only, they only hired before me out of Oxford and Cambridge. And I was like, and I passed all their tests and I was like, I'm pretty good at these IQ number type stuff. And, um, so I ended up working there and I was like, so happy because I was like, wow, I gone to Oxford or Cambridge and done a good degree. I might've ended up here anyway. So now I'm like, okay, we skipped all that two years. I'm in this good job now. And it was pretty intense. I was there for like nine months. The first, and I didn't play any poker really for the first month it was like training. Then I was up working on uh, aircraft carriers because our job was basically, we'd look at a process of how to build something and we try and simplify it. So for example, if I'm working on an aircraft carrier in, in Scotland and I can save them one week of time to build an aircraft carrier, that's a million pounds worth of labor. So if I can save that company a million pounds, I can charge them three hundred K for doing it. So that's the kind of thing, you know, we talk. that's the kind of consultancy I was working on. How, but on aircraft How did carriers it feel
1: to get this gig after, you know, some futility, in other careers? And you're like, wow, like all these people are being brought on from prestigious universities and you nailed the gig.
2: Well, it felt pretty good. It felt like a chip off my shoulder had gone, but it was kind of a blessing in disguise. It was almost like a lesson as well, because I was like, oh, this is what you always wanted. I still didn't want it. I was still like... Working this ninth, well, it was even, it was actually, you're away all week. So I was working, not like a nine to five, I'm away Monday, come back on Friday. And then I'm like, oh, so for me, my poker was like still my hobby and my passion. So I'm like, great, I'm going to have some money now. I can go and, um, I can go and play these like 400 pound tournaments every couple of months, which are like the big ones where I got to get to play them. I was excited about that. I was way more excited about playing tournaments. I was not that interested in cash. And um, I was just so tired at the weekend. I still didn't want to do that. I used to fly, fly to get two flights a week. Um, you know, you, you say it's going to be a lot of money. You start on like forty thousand a year, which five thousand actually was towards your car, so you don't receive that. Uh, and then seven k was a bonus, so you don't receive that either. And then the over twenty eight k translated to like, I think I want to say like one thousand eight hundred pounds a month. Then you have to pay your student loan. Then by the time you paid your rent and whatever else, I've gone from basically going from like say two hundred pound a month disposable income to seven hundred pound a month disposable income, and it didn't change my life really. Other than just made me work harder, and then just promised me the potential of getting this number higher because I'm going to be slightly more skilled and have a better job on my resume in the future. But then I was like, and then they're like, oh, in five years you might get this number to 100k. And then I'm doing all the maths, then going, so I get this up to 100k, and then I'm going to get this much money a month, which means my student loan payment's going to be this much, and this is going to be this, and I'm still going to be doing this many hours. And then I was like, I can still make much more money than that playing poker. Like, and I and, I, and then it got to the point where. Just before i took this job i was basically broke um so i'm in my recruitment job in birmingham and i i get the good job but it doesn't start for like four months so i got the choice now between stay in this recruitment job or you know and then wait because they uh, they don't know i'm leaving yet or do i do i just quit and like basically be a bum performance so i decided to quit and be a bum performance because once i knew i was leaving i could not be there anymore Uh, i had no money but i had just enough money to basically survive uh, and it was a Christmas period as well, so it wasn't going to be like too bad. Um, uh, but and then my friends decided they were going on a trip to Thailand and Cambodia and travel, and I couldn't afford to go. And I was so jealous that they got away to do that. And that's how my friend I told you about earlier ended up going. Fuck this, I'm staying here. I'm just going to play twenty five fifty on the beach in Phuket, stay in an apartment where I'm paying four hundred dollars a month, and uh, actually stay with a girl so he didn't pay for his apartment, and um, and then go to the gym every day. And I was like, and I was I was getting quite overweight as well. So I was just like, man, that's like. The dream, I can go sort my health out. I can just play poker. Uh, it sounds great. Um, but I got this good job now, so why would I do that? So then I started playing poker a little bit more. Went on a huge heater, a massive heater. Uh, me and my brother, we sold for a lot of tournaments, a lot of tournament series. And I think between us, in the next four to three three to four months, we cashed for over a hundred thousand pounds. We had to give a lot of that away because it was all like uh sold and stuff and staked. Um, but then the big one I won was like for 26,000 where I only sold 30% and had the rest. So I had 70% myself. So all of a sudden I go, whoa, all well, my overdrafts are gone. i got 15K in the bank. I've got a sign-on bonus for my new job. That's it. Let's go. So I'm like, "The net, my net worth is like getting higher. I started this job and I'm, I'm happy to start this job.
1: You, you and your brother are on there. good terms. Good terms. Yeah, while yeah you're well, both, great, both terms, this.
2: great terms. Um, and then I just, for nine months, the, my net worth didn't change because you just end up like spending what you want. And I'm just like, what 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 is it? and then and then I end up leaving um with a pre-planned trip to the World Series Europe, ended up getting to like the final table at on one of the World Series Europe events for like 26k. I was quite unlucky in that final table, busted to Hiram Hecklin, who I, I later meet in Macau and remind him about it. Um and um but then I was like, all right, so what do I do now? And my mom's up in my rent each month. And I'm like, she goes, yeah, you can't just stay here forever. You, you know, you could have more pay when you had a good job. And I'm like, oh, great. Now pushing you out of the nest, pay. like
1: one inch yeah. at a time. Like, all right, buddy. So move,
2: yeah, so I move in with my friend. And at this point, my friend is, my friend said in Thailand, he goes, oh, why don't you come visit? So I ended up going visit him in Thailand for two weeks. You quit home. quit
1: your job at this point, right? Is that yeah, i I
2: quit, quit, quit my job. I'm playing poker full time.
1: When did you quit your job? When you went on that tear with your brother?
2: No, I, so... I left the recruitment job. Yeah. I had a four month gap between this and the new job. Yeah. And the tear happened in that four month gap. Okay. So now I've got like 15,000 pounds. Then I get my yeah. sign on bonus. So I've got like 20,000 pounds. Then I work for nine months and I've still got 20,000 pounds.
1: Yeah. I um, got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I mean, that's when you said sayonara. Um, progress is yeah, not I mean, being made were,
2: here. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 at work as well, it wasn't like I was the best employee, I wasn't a bad one. But I definitely, on my third project, just did not get on with my boss. But that's probably just a different story. Um, And then I ended up going, okay, well, this just isn't for me. And uh, so then I ended up moving out of my home, going to live with my friend for the last few months, just because it was cheaper than my mom. My mom put the rent up so much it was cheaper to move out. Uh, She just really didn't want me. And then I went to visit my friend in Thailand early the next year and then came back. I was like, that was such a fun trip. Um, Came back. Another friend was going to visit him, but he was going to travel and do it for like three months. And he was going, and I was like, that's it. I'm gonna I'm gonna take my laptop. I'm gonna go and do it in Thailand. So I was like, said to a friend, all right, I'm moving out, I'm taking my laptop, I'm going to Thailand, see what happens. Um ended up three months basically covering my costs while I was there, which was enough, right? I'm traveling, and you know, I'd play my hundred dollar, I'd play my hundred now, I'd make my three hundred dollars and I'd be like, yeah, that that's the, that's this week covered. And um, and we go and travel somewhere else, we go look around, stay in Airbnbs. It was so fun. Um and then I ended, I ended up going home for my, my dad's 50th and my brother's 21st. So I had to go home for that and then went to Vegas for that. So that was a fun Vegas trip. And then, uh, and then it was just like, why am I not back in Thailand? Like I, went, I, I literally come home. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I was necessarily depressed when I came home, but I'd be like, what, what is there for me in the UK? Like it's cold. Um, yeah, my family's here, but my family have always been the My mom would never, my mom, if I was at home just to stay with my family, my mom would be more upset than if I was was away and she was missing me, if that makes sense. So she's very much of like, yeah, I want you to go do all these things. And I'm like, well, I want to go in Thailand. And at the time I was like, if I go broke, I'll just come back and get another job. Like it's not the end of the world. Like I've got no dependents right now. I've got no um, things to worry about. You know, I've got a credit card, sick. So like-
1: These were my exact thoughts at 21 years old. Like that exact rationale of like, what's the worst thing that can happen? It's not so bad. Okay. Let's try it.
2: Yes. Off I go. And then my friend that I went went traveling with is actually still there. Um, My other friend was doing something in America. Ended up going back there. He'd already found an apartment where she was booked six months in. So I went and booked myself in like the same condo building. I was like, right, we're here for six months now. And then um, to be honest, the first three months was just pure partying and Breaking even. So I was just making, I was making my, so my rent, I think was, it's in Bangkok. So my rent would have been about 400 pounds £400 a month, $500. My one bedroom, it wasn't a studio, it was one bedroom, kitchen, bathroom, living room. So it's a reasonable, nice place, decent location. Um, but I, I'd be going out so much because, but the thing is that I, I was going out because, and I was getting I, inadvertently, I was getting better at poker because. Um, I was around the right community of people that was helping me now. I was just, my other friends had met other people there. And they were like, the one guy I met called Jason, incredible poker player, probably one of the best Pokemon's I've ever met. Um, not the easiest person to get on with, but incredible. And like, he didn't have many friends. So one of his ways that he tried try and make friends was like, you'd want to help your poker. And he, this guy was like 10 levels above me and he's just helping me at poker. And it just, some of that seeped through and I was just getting better and better at poker. And I'm playing my 100 Zoom on stars. I'd never really played reg tables, even I probably should have just because I enjoyed playing Zoom. Um, and I'd make my money and I'd have my expenses covered for the month. And then I'd be like, right, that's my, that's that sort. And then any more money I'd make would just be spent in the bars. And I'd just like go out, party, have a good time, uh, eat crap, eat food, eat, you know what I mean? And I'm just like, did that for like three to six, three months. Then joined um, what you call like a CFP. So then someone who, you know, I talk poker with a lot of people. One of them were like, one of the guys were like, well, "Why don't you, um, why don't you join the CFP? Seems like a good one for you." And it was, uh, it was called, it was a guy called Donald Ray, um, and his screen name was like D seven one zero one SD or something like that. And uh, he ended up starting something called the D seven Army, which was uh, I was his very first student when he was starting this, and then he that ended up getting sold or relabeled BitB Cash, and that's now still BitB Cash. So I was like the original. the BitB Cash is the thing. I was like the original before it's even become Bitby cash, I was like the, the first guy they took on.
1: Yeah. And before they were the best in the business, they were best the, the d
2: Yeah, I, I started that business. <laughs> nah, <laughs> but um, so basically it was me and Donald one-on-one for like the first month. And I shot took 200 Zoom and it got okay. But bankroll wise, I was just like, I'm more comfortable just playing my 100 because right now I'm like, I probably don't have as much money as I should. And, and I'm just like, I'm very comfortable playing my 100 Zoom, making my money and spending it. So 200, I'm like, if I go to dance room, I can't spend any money. Um, so, But then Donald basically provided me some bankroll and basically said, just play 200. And to be honest, without, I, I, not, I don't want to sound arrogant. Like, I was good enough to beat 200 already. Um, but just, it was The extra confidence, the yeah, bankroll and whatever, which went on a tear at 200 pretty fast. Um, Most so people thinking,
1: are good enough to beat the stake above where they're playing, especially they if they're don't. beating it at a good clip. They just are yeah. afraid of the extra risk. I've never found. I mean, there are some steps that are exponentially more exponentially harder than previous steps, but I don't think that happens from like one hundred to two hundred.
2: I completely agree. And one of the biggest things I teach people now is move up aggressively because even even if you look at it as an opportunity cost, like let's say you're winning at one hundred and three b blinds, and so I say thirty dollars an hour, and let's say you go up to two hundred, it doesn't it doesn't double in difficulties. You're not just going to go down to 1.5. You want to go down to 2, which means you're now making $40 an hour because your two blinds are worth more. So every hour you play 100 instead 200, you're literally losing $10 an hour.
1: Yeah. The only way to exponentially increase your hourly rate is to either double, <laughs> double your win rate or move up, move up stakes. stakes. And going up, stakes, up stakes is, is way, easier. way easier than doubling your win rate for sure. Yeah. Com-
2: completely agree. And so then we were like shot taking 200 or sorry, playing 200 was the main stake now. So I didn't mind giving half my money away because I'm playing twice the stakes. And then we were shot taking 400 and 500. And I think the first three months with Donald must've made like 75 K just playing like um, online. But obviously half of that was given away. And then for that. Well, it wasn't you know, give, it was given
1: one. away. They, they provide the opportunity and that was their, that's their prize for no, investing. I, I, I,
2: don't, I don't begrudge that. I'm more saying like bank didn't increase by 75k. Yeah, no, and obviously I'm spending money too, and uh, and then I so I used most so I, I used that money to fly my parents out to uh, Thailand, to and then I ended up moving in with my friends because like all the dates finally synced up, and moved it all in together, and then um, and then Donald Donald was growing the stable pretty fast. The problem with that was I was the first student, and I didn't seem to need too much work. Just told me that to basically said three bit more and then I was off and I was figuring all out and I'm, I'm I'm one of these people that I don't I like to work it out myself I can be like my, my coach at the moment for training for bodybuilding is like um I'm very very stubborn so sometimes I don't listen to him because I don't but it's, the problem is like I need to understand it myself first and then I and then I will 100% do it every single time but until I fully understand it I'm a bit more oh well, what about this way what about that way like I don't why, what's the difference between your way and this way and, uh, and I'm a why, why do you think that is I don't know. Maybe it's an ego thing or maybe it's a, um, maybe it's just served me so well in the past. And like, it's a way of like, maybe not relying on other people. And I don't, I don't like going into things where I don't, um, I don't fully understand things. Cause I feel, I don't know. Because then if you do it on your own in you, the future, the point of getting a coach or at least I used to have big arguments with Donald as well. <laughs> I would argue about certain spots and the, the argument, in my opinion, wasn't like a bad thing. It was like a good thing. Cause we wouldn't like, Argue and then like not like each other. We'd argue. Like, what about this way? Well, no, i See what you're saying. But what about that? And what about this? And then that argument, that attrition, helped me understand it so much more. That even now, I don't necessarily think about what he said or what I said at the time because I understand it so intrinsically now that even when the exception to the rule pops up, I already understood it better at a deeper level. That there's no exception that can kind of phase me. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is how two really good players grow exponentially with each other. Yeah. Is You'll always have these disagreements about spots and you'll have differing opinions if you allow yourself to be open to the input of the other person and think about it, right? And then also test it and look into it and research it. And then you come up with an answer and like either way, one of you wins and it's the person whose opinion changes, And that's, and you both grow and understand a a spot so much better. This is what I've learned from coaching, actually. From coaching, I've learned, I understand fundamentally what's happening so much better than I ever did as a player, because I have to think about it deeply and then communicate that information to another person, which is very difficult. It's not an easy thing to do.
2: Well, when we get to this part of the story, I'm very interested to hear what you say, because there's one big breakthrough I think I had in poker that kind of like sums up what you said, but that wasn't until I got to like the next coach.
1: Sure. Uh, so, but you're, you're arguing with your, your backer. And I actually, I do want to like say, a, give my opinion on this. It could be that you just enjoy solving puzzles and figuring things out. Yeah, like it I, could-
2: I, I, I see a lot of poker solving puzzles and, yeah things out.
1: when it comes to like lifting fitness like you don't yeah. you don't want the answers you want to figure it out yourself because you enjoy that part of the process i mean that it could just be as simple as that
2: yeah it's not like i'm looking for a cheat code i'm just looking to like understand it fully and in fact one the one one of the biggest breakthroughs which is kind of what i was just alluding to was i was trying to like i was looking at solvers and i was like what is a solver doing to like come out with this output like what is it doing like i understand game theory i understand like the back and forth, and Nash, Nash equilibriums, and all this kind of stuff. But I was like, what is it actually doing? And what are the, like, why, why is a solver different to what I would do in human world? And how do I put something on top of this solver that's gonna make me apply it to the human world? And what I ended up with, which I think is a really powerful concept, uh, which they use in physics, is something called like first principles. And I don't know if you've heard of that concept before, but it's like basically just try taking reasoning back to the ultimate like axioms of what it is. And like, what are you actually starting from? And then I had to go back and go, okay, so poker, what are we actually trying to do here? And ultimately, as a professional, so the way I figured it out was like, you're a professional or you're an amateur. Ultimately, everyone's on a spectrum. A professional is trying to make money at the game, and an amateur is trying to have fun. Everyone, realistically, is somewhere in between the two. So you need to just understand that those are the two polar opposites to be in. And, and how do we money.
1: make money, Ginge. And then the next, yeah,
2: so how do we make money? But the thing is, the, the reason I wanted to reason it like that and not just say we just want to make money is because there are definitely situations in live poker and this reasoning solves for that as well. Where you might want to give up some EV to have more fun at the table because long-term your EV is higher. Whereas if you just want to say you want to increase your EV as high as possible, you've actually skipped that step, if that makes any sense. Because then well, you
1: can... You... You're actually not thinking about it more deeply enough or abstractly enough to realize that the longer, like the higher ev play is in giving up some ev right now right you're just yes. thinking very short term
2: yeah exactly and for me that made more sense when i started thinking about things on, on that kind of line so it's like okay so to make as much money as possible we're making as much ev as we can and if we're trying to make as much ev as we can it's actually a really cool uh, economics paper uh, have you heard of the prison's dilemma uh
1: is i think so that's where you have like the in- incentives disalign or is that the prisoners? Ah, whatever. Explain it. Uh,
2: so the prisoner's dilemma is when two people get arrested. Let's say me and you get arrested and we're both interviewed separately and we can either both stay silent or we can basically or both admit what we did. And if, y- if you admit what you did, you're, you're going to get a lesser sentence, but I'm going to get the higher sentence and vice versa. Right, so right, right. if we both stay quiet, it's the most GTO for both of us, but it's, the, but it's not as good for you so, example, let's say if we both stay quiet, we both get two years in prison. If you speak, you only get one year in prison and I get 15 years. If I speak, I get one year in prison and you get 15 years. And if we both speak, we both get 20 years. So even though speaking is better for you, like it, it, it's, it's an impossible puzzle to solve, basically, because the way incentives line up, because your incentive is to speak but if both incentives are the same to speak then that means we both shouldn't speak so it's a little bit so one of those riddles that goes around in circle but basically if you look at that game from two different ways you can look at it from an infinite game and a finite game so if you play this game forever and you know you're going to play this game forever and ever and ever and over and <laughs> over again that you want to solve for the basically the lowest outcome which is both of you don't talk but if you want to solve this game for just a one-off time you're only ever going to play this game once. The answer is to do what's best for you, which is weird because then you're both technically supposed to speak. That's also true in poker. So, that's the difference between like playing like a, like a, what we just spoke about there is like, I could just be an asshole in this game. It's exactly the same thing. I could just be an asshole and I can maximize my right now because that means you're playing a finite game instead of an infinite game. So, what you said is true. Like, if you're you maxing, you want to maximize your be over long term. In theory, yes, that is completely true. But if you know you're never playing poker again, then you should be the arsehole and as much as that sounds horrible to say it, that that's that's how that's you know if we're going to nuts and bolts it, that's how we should think about it
1: yeah i mean that that's the reality of the situation and yeah. brian, brian paris and i talked about the prisoner's dilemma which makes me sad that i didn't remember the nuts and bolts of it but um yeah it's just basically like it's an incentive problem um yeah. and
0: you survived pre-flop boot camp Chop the fish in a barrel. Now, prepare yourself for the Feeding Frenzy. A comprehensive strategy for gutting every fish in your player pool. Data-driven hero bluffs, light call-downs, and perfect value bets that are maximally designed to hurt some feelings. Feeding Frenzy. Available now at ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash FeedingFrenzy.
1: Yeah, so, so tell me your breakthrough, thinking about the Prisoner's Dilemma.
2: So that, that, that for me was like an infinite game versus a finite game. It was like yeah. kind of like a little bit of a breakthrough. Because like, in a lot of situations, it, when we play a hand of poker, we're playing infinite games and finite games at the same time. So an infinite game might be a situation where you are uh, playing the flop and you're just gonna play this flop, you're gonna play the solver strategy every single time because you're not gonna think about it too much because it's too complicated. There's too many game trees, there's too many things to think about. You're just gonna, like, all right, this board, see where third, not where you're really gonna worry about it. But then there's gonna be situations where you're playing a finite game, which is say for example, on the river versus an amateur player, where you know like this guy's either never folding or maybe he's always calling and you're gonna go, all right, this guy's never folding, I'm never going to bluff this guy. That's, not, that's you now playing a finite game because you're just solving for a one-off situation that may never happen again and whatever. And technically, if you think about it, every situation in poker is a finite, but we use the infinite game to try and judge how we play the finite game.
1: Sure. Um, <laughs> it's funny. Uh, me and Nick Howard were just talking about it the other day, how like we start out poker by thinking about the one hand in front of us. And then yep. as we learn and grow, we start thinking in like range versus range. And then yep. as we break through the other side, yeah, back to the we,
2: one hand in front of we, you.
1: We realize that we both are playing exactly one hand in front of us, right? Well
2: if, if you maximize the hand in front of you, you have in theory maximized your range.
1: Sure. And Absolutely. If, if
2: you follow if, if you look at solvers as well, you see they do that. You see you go, ah, oh, this hand wants to do this. So it does that. And it's just like, oh, <laughs> it's always just playing. It's just playing exactly how it wants to play and it's making the most money it can. And as soon as you kind of like, the, the biggest thing I have with a lot of mistakes that I'm trying to teach them is um, is kind of letting go of this like GTO, play perfect poker all the time. But when trying to reteach them the perfect poker is literally making as much money as you can. So let go of the, this is a half-pot bet. This is a 2 x pot bet. Just go, what is going to make the most money?
1: Yeah, And then this, your
2: judgment comes back into it Your feel comes back into it Your reader of the situation comes back into it And some of them don't necessarily have that And that's sometimes why people get confused And they call that natural ability maybe That's what people call it That's like that kind of like They can figure these situations out on the fly They can sit in a live game And know that that guy's going to bluff too much Or that guy's not going to bluff at all Like to some people that might be obvious But some, not everyone has that If that makes any sense
1: Oh it makes total sense I think that just the way that I'm made I've naturally been good at hand reading and putting people on ranges especially less sophisticated players you know they yeah. are playing one hand and a lot of times when they're playing one hand they play that hand in and they give one it very specific so way all right yeah.
2: and there are so many i would so this is this is kind of funny actually so i have a bit of so i've been playing this 500 zoom on stream and i have a bit of like a following and some people think that i'm really really good at poker and some people think i'm horrendous at poker and it's kind of funny because a lot of the, the hate i get in poker um which maybe would have bothered me years and years ago, but obviously since making, you know, in my head, like not having too much to prove in poker anymore, doesn't bother me as much. But the people that show me the most hate are these guys playing like 50, 100, 200 zoom. And these are the guys that are just locked in their own heads. And they're just like, oh, but he, he's, oh, dude, he's so bad. He, he's free about this combo and it's only supposed to be this combo like 1.6% of the time. And oh my God, he's done it twice. And you're just like, you not hear yourselves. And I find that, is just becoming more and more of a thing because people are just getting almost not deluded, but they're just getting obsessed with like playing solver poker, playing perfect poker. And they're just forgetting like the step before that, which is make it as funny as you can. Right. And you don't even get to that level most of the time. And they're just, just, they're just blinded by a lot of stuff now that I think is just, I don't, that's why I don't think poker is ever going to die.
1: Yeah. It's interesting because I, th- I, I think about this exact thing a lot, right? Like Last December, Jason Kuhn came on the podcast and basically made a statement that has stuck with me ever since. And it was when you understand what poker is at the basic level, you're able to play any game of poker at a high level relatively quickly. You're able to figure Uh, figure it out, right? And so it begged the question of like, well, what is poker? What is this game? Which leads to a lot of reflection and thought as to like, what is this game, right? And what you said, you know, make the most money. Well, how does that happen? So good poker players find the most spots to make plus EV bets because poker is a game of betting. And the more plus EV bets you make, the more money you make. And so that's it, right? Like guys that will find, you know, a plus EV bluff on the river where, you know, they have to like 1.5 X jam or whatever it is like that is a plus EV bet. They make it therefore at the end of their lifetime, they make more money than the people that don't find that bet. And I mean, really that's what it is. And then when we move to the solver thing, solvers are fascinating to me because of the dogmatic belief that people have on the outputs. And I've thought about what you said a ton. How does this solver work? What is it doing? Yeah. And the more that I learn about it, the more hilarious it gets. It's like, so solver, whenever you input your sizings, solver builds a strategy based on the knowledge of what sizing is, your yeah. opponent's so, going to use on a future yeah. street. When the reality yeah. is, we have no fucking idea in real time what yeah. sizing our opponent's going to use on a street. So, like, you look so at to get this a
2: true solver. We have to put like infinite sizes, infinite possibilities. When even a human wouldn't even be able to to do that. And it's so. I remember saying to someone, "So, so, so can I rerun this sim now that I've seen this twenty three percent and, and given me all these sizes? Is that going to change everything? Is that going to take me another three hours to figure that out?" And it's pretty crazy.
1: Like yesterday. I was just looking at like the impact of adding like a a two x turn size in like a three but pot. We were just like like I just ran a default solve. Then I ran another one using that sizing and was like looking at the outputs. And it was like it's hilarious how the flop strategies changes based on changing the, the turn the sizing right. Yeah. It, well it's not a possibility in the solver. It's locked in. Like this is yeah. what it's going. Like I'm programming it to use this. So yeah. like it's saying, Oh, this is just this should be our flop strategy now because we have visibility as to like what the fuck villain's gonna do exactly on the turn. You never have yeah. this visibility. Or you yeah. I mean you have it when you play against regs for the most part, because regs tend to they tend stick-
2: to have the, the the core four sizes that <laughs> they're right, right, available they, to them on every street. Yeah.
1: Right. But then like fish will use weird sizes and they'll do things like Those, outside the box yeah. and
2: and then, yeah. and then, and then the hundred zoom reg freaks out and goes but how has he bet one third and just turn? It's a deuce. How does he do that?
1: Yeah, right. And it's like, it, it's just, it's all become quite silly to me where like, yeah, you, you want to trust the output of the solver. We need to have way more precise inputs and we need what, to understand. Yeah, go ahead. What
2: I like to try and get people to do is try and, so I say solvers like a calculator. <laughs> so it's like when you learn your multiplication when you're a kid. Like you learn up to twelve times twelve, or at least that's what we do uh, at school. But then if someone asks you what's well, thirty-two times thirty-two, you, you don't memorise that, and that's kind of what a solver is. So you don't just go. So you should be able to work that out and go, oh, it's one thousand twenty-four or whatever. And but a solver in real life is not going to. Is a calculator, so you can go check your working, but you need to learn the patterns. You need to learn how to do the maths yourself in your head and get close enough. Like, so I, so I like to test myself and like look for these patterns and figure it out. And then, and then I try and check and see, oh, am I right there? Am I wrong? But then there's, then there's also loads of biases you can have. I can go look at a river and go, I think it's going to use this sizing. And then go and see that it checks 92% and uses my sizing 8%. And am I right now? <laughs> I don't even know anymore, but then I'm trying to look for uh, all sorts of stuff. But one of the biggest things for solvers for me was this uh, realization of like EV and how it relates to equity. So that's really helped me with a lot of situations in, um, how to figuring out suits because I think suits won't be because uh, I have a course and one of the big sections of my course is about suits. And a lot of people say after that is like, whoa, we didn't realize how big suits were and suits for me are so powerful because they can help you control your frequencies. They can help you figure out which combos to use in loads of different situations. But then there's there's still a myriad of things that come along with that. It's like, oh, do I use these suits now? Or is this the wrong one to use? Is that the one that I'm aggressive with? Is that the one I'm not aggressive with? And then there's all sorts of new variables that come up and I was like, well, wow this guy's going to call the raise and I've got a good hand. So I'm just going to raise.
1: Right. Like that's at the end of the day, it it could just boil down to that. Right. Like, you know, I see people inappropriately using suits like students all the time where like a decision is not even relatively close and yet it hinges on the suit that they have in their hand when it's like anything you do (laughs) is anything you do makes fucking money here. Like just any hand you call with on the river makes money. Don't just call when you don't have a club. Like just call when you have this strength of hand. Exactly.
2: With all the the (laughs) pads.
1: Yeah. Let's not overthink this, guys. Let's let's not overthink this. Um, But you're right. Like a solver is a calculator, and the thing that we ought to learn from the solver is how it adapts to different strategies and what the counter strategies are, what those patterns are um, so that in real time you can be agile and you can figure these things out to the best of your ability while it's going down. But other than that, I mean, that's just the major use case for solvers in my opinion.
2: Yeah. I I couldn't agree more.
1: Cool. I'm glad we agree to agree.
2: agree. Yeah. I actually find that opinion shared quite a bit amongst the the higher stakes reg community. I find that um most regs are like, yeah, solvers have their have their bit. Like even like I work with Odin now and Odin are like a uh I call them a viewer. So like they run the solve and you just get to like click and have a look without doing the whatever. And even they're like, yeah, I mean like that it's a tool. But realistically if you're playing these high stakes games you're playing like this, you're leaving money on the table.
0: Yeah. And even, even
2: those guys are very open about that. And I'm like that that's why kind of why I wanted to work with them because like all these high stakes regs when they talk to me, like all these 100, 200 guys and these 1,500 guys that play live, they're like, yeah, like no one plays exactly like this. We're, we're all trying to figure it out. We're playing a game against each other. And like, yeah, I know that this is the right strategy and I see someone maybe do it wrong. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Why did he do that? Not he did it wrong. Ha ha. It's, you know, that you see that a lot from the lowest stakes track as well. You go, they laugh at people that make mistakes. You don't they, don't they don't question it. They don't go, oh, why did he do that? It's like, because I see people like uh, Hecklin, for example, Henry Hecklin. A uh, beast high stakes player will do something crazy, and I'm like, I don't just go, Fuck he's a whale. I go, why did he do that?
1: What does he know like, a, like yeah what,
2: what does he know that I don't know
1: yeah like this, this is always like i think I think this is like a pure trait of the best poker players yeah. that I know is like slow to judge, quick to investigate, and dive deep into their curiosity. Like when I see a high level player do something that I don't do. My mind is like blown. Like, everybody can call them a fish all they want, but I'm like, wow, what are they thinking about here that I can learn from? And like, lower level players don't. They just shit on something they don't understand. And I think also, uh, sorry, not to derail, but what what I think happens, the pattern that I see with like 50, 100, 200 NL players that get stuck in this paradigm of solvers is that. They start out being losing poker players, and they lack any sort of strategic map in which to navigate poker. And once they have those maps that have allowed them to be like a small winning player at those stakes, they are highly reluctant to let them go. They just can't even imagine being able to navigate with releasing those. It's like a safety mechanism, I think.
2: Yeah, yeah. I would agree. And I think, again, that's why they're not going to escalate to the high stakes in the games. And there's a sick bubble of high stakes poker right now because there isn't these... Everyone there is kind of like... They've made a lot of money in poker. They're not these super sick wizards that are just like going to play sim-sim poker. They're there. They're figuring it out the same way you are. I, I would say most high stakes games I play and most of the guys probably don't beat Fire Emblem Zoom. And it's quite nice to be in some of these games because these guys coming up is aren't going to break through because they're just not going to get out their own heads and gather way. If that makes sense.
1: Oh, it does. And I think it was um, Rainer Kempe that came on the podcast and was talking about the German guys that got together and, you know, were able to exponentially improve at poker over a very short period of time. And he said something that, that stuck with me. And that's that over time, People become complacent because they're not as yeah. hungry anymore. You know, a 50 yeah. year old that's been successful at poker for 25 years, yeah, they're not fucking grinding solvers. They're, they're not looking at data. They're not thinking. They're not as curious about the game as, you know, a 22 year old kid that's investing their entire life into the yeah. game.
2: And there's just, there's a lot less ego at the high stakes as well. Not necessarily because, maybe because there's less hunger, but also because like you all mutually respect each other once you've made it into like that game. You're like, and like you know, if I play a part against Heinrich Acklin and he beats me, I beat him. But like whatever, we're not after each other's money. Like we're there because hopefully there's a player in the game that we want to play against. And like some days he'll stack me, some days I'll stack him, and it's just the nature of the game. And we're not after each other anymore. Whereas I feel like when you're in the trenches, you're in these two hundred Zoom, you're in the five ten lives and ten twenty lives. Everyone's in the trenches together, and everyone's like trying to beat each other. And they just they, just, they don't realize that like you're probably breaking even against all these records with these with, in these rate games. Like like leave the table if the table's bad like don't let your ego get involved and sit in these games with like 10 stacks just because that Russian reg is stacked you last time and play one hand badly just move to another table and even I would do that like I'm not just going to sit in a five ten game just get, and full of guys just because I think one guy that I saw play a twitch stream was a bad player
1: um and you don't get that at high stakes high stakes is so much nicer to play you have to understand this is a hard thing to get people to people want to think that like they're winning poker players because they're more clever than the combatants. They battle on a daily basis because like they're more clever than the regs. Like the reality is it's Pareto principle. 80% of your win rate comes from 20% of the players. And guess what? It ain't the regs. Like you you can lose money way faster than you can win money playing poker. And so if you're playing against somebody with the 40 big blind loss rate against five regs, guess what? Every single one of your fucking win rate comes from beating this 40 big blind loss rate. And like, that's just the truth reality of poker and the situation. And like, you just have to accept it. But like, I mean, I know even high level guys that don't accept that reality that, that are like, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I want to beat the right. And it's like, dude, like in a basic best case scenario, you're beating them out of a few big blinds. You're losing a few big blinds, like based on that.
2: It's just astronomical.
1: Right. And then you got this dude, that sits down that's losing 50. Like, how do you think everybody wins? Of course it's coming from the weak players. Like it's, it's very obvious to me, but somewhat controversial, I guess, out, outside of my little bubble.
2: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I find that that is more well-known in the circles I sit in, maybe because of the way Macau is set up. And it's a bit more like, you kind of, there's VIP seats in Macau. So for example, like, there'll be an eight-handed table with two empty seats with a, a whale that will get priority. Don't call them whales, obviously, they're just billionaires, but you know, everyone's kind of waiting for that. So when that guy's not there, Yo. one guy will be able to break from the table. You can Everyone call me, me a whale.
1: If I'm a billionaire, you can call me a whale or whatever I, mean, I think <laughs> Landon
2: Pye said something that I quite liked. He goes, uh, uh, I'm playing. I'm learning to be a pro, so one day I can be a whale or something like that. I thought it was pretty cool. I was like, yeah, I'd like to be a whale. I don't think I could let myself do it though. Yeah, every now and again, I'll play some low stakes and I'll splash around, but this just yeah. something to give me. I'm like, nah, I don't want to give it away.
1: Funny story about that. Um, people think they can do that. Maybe some some Odd. people could, but uh, my Tactical Tuesday co-host John recently dove into PLO, and he was like a whale. <laughs> he was a fish <laughs> before, um, and he loved it. He loved playing, and then like he went through the run at once from the ground up course, built out like a strategy with like detailed notes, and like went really deep, and then realized like. God damn, I've got to play way too tight that I want to play. And then just scrapped PLO. Like it just, it was not fun for him. And he couldn't make himself do the things he was doing before because he knew that they were negative EV, which I just find well, hilarious.
2: I, I got a question for you there. How do you feel when like, because because uh, my girlfriend knows I'm oh, obviously a poker player. And every now and again, she's like, oh, what, what what do we play for fun? Like, oh, my friends are playing poker. Do you want to come around and play? And I'm like, I'd hate that. <laughs> I'd hate that so much.
1: Oh, it's I the really worst. I don't want to do that. It's the worst, like uh, people, and, and what's what's most messed up about it is like, people want to play with me and I yeah. have no interest in like, I just play, I'm the worst. Lose, I play lose awful. Money. Like I-
2: You lose money and you don't feel bad or you take the money and you feel bad. Or it's just, how do, how do I possibly win in this situation? Like, I'm not even going to like necessarily enjoy it.
1: You don't win because like my incentive when I do that is to have fun. And do like what's fun to me, which basically means bluffing off all my chips in the first hand. But ultimately, that is not very satisfying to me. So, like, even, even if I lose, like, even if I win, I lose, and even if I lose, I lose. Yeah, it's it just lose, lose.
2: It's so can't, can't. I'm trying to explain that to her, and I was like, "Look, I just had to go. Look, it's my job. <laughs> and I don't want to work on my time off."
1: Yeah, just play a different card game, you know. Just play play yeah. a different board game or something like that yeah, for funny fun. To play right right um so let's see you're you're in thailand you've moved up where were we at in your story you oh, were yeah. getting staked so with so bitby
2: flew my, my parents over with some of the money i've made uh, and obviously i'm spending money um something that I'm worth is probably like twenty thousand right now um and then um then i start going on a downswing not major major but like obviously spending money going on a downswing and then I felt like, so Donald had brought on like loads of more guys. And to be honest, again, I don't want to sound too arrogant. I feel like he took on loads of guys because because I went so well. that he just thought that, oh, I can just take on anyone. It would just go just as well. And that didn't happen. And he brought on a few other coaches. And then Donald kind of had a bit of a, uh, um, he had some mental issues where he had to deal with that. And that's fair enough. And he had to go and deal with that. But then I just felt like a little bit abandoned because I only had like a couple of hours of coaching to start and then I was flying and now I'm down swinging. And then I'm just like, I need your help now. And just wasn't there. So towards the end, it was a one-year deal, kind of felt a bit sour. And then I ended up like basically just going, okay, well, we'll, I think I was in like 10K of makeup. And the way it worked was I would have to pay half. And I tried, so I I think it was 8K. So I I had to pay like four back. And I was like, I don't really agree. Um, So I ended up paying like 3K and get a small discount on that. But we're fine now. But that was that that situation. Um, In the meantime, I felt like I was doing work off, away from him, and then refiguring out where I was going wrong. And then, my kind of, and then I started playing on some apps. And then I made like 30,000 very quickly in the apps. I was like, yay, chop it out, get my 15,000. I'm, I'm doing well again. And then immediately uh, go on a 180 and lose about 100K back. Um, and I was like, great. I'm in 100K hole now. Wonderful. Yep. Welcome uh, to the world arrested. of
1: apps. Oh, you got arrested. Ah. Cool. Yeah, I was in jail in <laughs> <It was laughs> how, fun. how did that happen? uh so i'm living
2: with two guys all poker players one guy goes out with his girlfriend and me and the other friend are playing poker in our Mm -hmm. flat apartment and another friend separate friend he's had an argument with his girlfriend on our street and she storms into our room without him goes like where is he like you know where is where is and we're like what are you talking about and we're just looking at like not really giving her the time of day and go around he's not here she leaves a bit later we get a knock on the door and we're just like come in because everyone but it's a bit weird because everyone kind of knows we need the door open when we're there and so then i stop i go and answer the door and honestly there's a condo owner and four policemen and i'm like kind of going what the fuck?" and they're like we're here to investigate a disturbance and she's really really screechy and aggressive so i'm thinking she's probably just shouted her mouth off at a boyfriend in the corridor and someone's called the police thinking she's fucking being tortured or something so i'm like yeah come in there's like she's not here like have a look around like, it's fine um my friend smokes weed and drugs are illegal in thailand and they just find a bag of weed and long story short um we end up in jail for like two days it was pretty stressful pretty scary um what is it like
1: being in thailand jail
2: so we're technically not in jail we're technically technically in the holding cell which is just like imagine like a cellar floor with a hole for a toilet um You got loads of different people in all the different cells. We had one guy that came in. uh, I think he must have been a reg, so because they just gave him his phone. He was just doing like fucking drug deals. (laughs) uh, So you have a
1: wait. You have a communal hole in the middle of the floor that everybody. It's in the corner. Oh, it's in the corner. So (laughs) it's not like a crowd, but yeah, that's.
0: hmm. And then there's no,
2: there's no like. It's like hardwood or hard cellar floor. So there's no like comfortables. We had a water bottle that we used as a pillow. Uh, obviously, you can't sleep. There's two girls coming down from whatever they've taken in another cell. There's people screaming. You're not sleeping that night, obviously, with the stress of the situation. Uh, and they get taken to court, and I think that's like going to be the court hearing. But it's just they say like, okay, you're going to jail. Uh, then end up getting bailed out last minute. So like, fuck, thank God. Um,
1: I think ended up- I, I think what you described there is a perfect metaphor for dogmatic solver users. They're stuck in a cell. They can't sleep. They're full of stress. Everybody's yelling. Um, can't leave. They just have to use this toilet in the corner. Just can't break out. Anyway. Yep.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm glad I got through mine by accident then. And then, um, yeah, so then had three months. of so my friend that wasn't there, I said, we messaged him. like, do not come back to the apartment. Like, just, like just stay away <laughs> um, just in case you get wrapped up in this. Um, then me and my friend that I got arrested with, uh, he went back home to England because the visa was about to run out anyway. So he was done. And then we got a place together, me and him. And we had to go back. This was pretty stressful. We had to go hire a lawyer. I had to go to the court every week to say we're still in the country. had to go to immigration to say that, that it wasn't like an easy thing to do because you got to go to the other side of Bangkok and line up for hours, explain to them what was going on. And they just, they just, they're just like, imagine like a snooty secretary, like the worst of the worst, but with actual power to control what you do like not just like someone where you can just like walk past like these are like just complete assholes and actually have power over you and um so that was just a nightmare stress for like three months eventually i remember this day because it was a day after halloween first of november uh we go into the court we i get convinced to say guilty basically um to possession so they basically said because it was my conduct which it wasn't um but they said that if i said not guilty we'd have to go to trial and it was 50 50 where i would get away with it and guilty, which I was like, well, we didn't know what the fuck was going to happen. And then, so we, so we line up. It was me, and my friend, and the translator, and then the two judges behind the screen. And they're like, all right, do you want to say guilty, not guilty? So we say guilty. And then they go, okay, because you said guilty, we're going to send you to jail for 30 days. And I was like, what? <laughs> uh, but uh, because you said guilty, uh, we're going to make you pay a fine uh, of 2,500 baht, which is what, $50, $55. I was like, take my money, <laughs> take all the money, <laughs> take it all. <laughs> I'm going. I got on the first plane home back in England. Um, and then the problem was, I kind of fell out with all my friends then. Uh, so, all my English friends, I kind of so, like, moved on doing their own So, things. you didn't
1: go to jail. You just paid the $55 fine?
2: Yeah. So, I was in the holding cell for two days and back and forth from the court for like three months, like not knowing what was going to happen, pretty stressed. Uh, I had like, I came out in like lumps with like the stress. It was like, it was pretty, it was pretty, I, I'm not describing the stress levels very well. Uh, it was pretty intense. <laughs> Cause you just, the problem was you just don't know what's going to happen. You just don't know if you're just going to be in jail for a year and then you just get lost in the Thai system. You're just like, what is literally going to happen? Like no one would give me a clear answer. Even the lawyers are, oh, this could happen. That could happen. I'm, what which fucking one. Um, and my friend kind of fell out with me cause like we kind of had like, he was like blaming me for letting the police in. And I was like, well, you, you're the one that had the weed and that was awkward. And then he kind of like was more friends with the Thai people and like all my English friends had moved away. And then, so I basically felt like when I got back home, like I just had no friends, my network was dwindling from like spending money on lawyers and traveling and jail and all this kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, it was that was probably the lowest I've ever been in my life, to be honest. That was kind of like rock bottom for me. Um, and it ended in a
1: $55 fine is like the ironic part of the whole deal. Yeah,
2: that's, that's, uh, I remember I get home, mom doesn't know I've landed and I'm outside my house. I was like, mom, I start pretending to cry, like I'm going to jail for 30 days. And then she's like, and I put the phone down on her and walk in. <laughs> And she was like, I can't believe you just fucking did that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you kicked me out. <laughs> yeah. You kicked me out of the home. This is, this is payback. Yeah. Um, I, I did read a study a while back on how basically the anticipation is the, one of the harder parts of stress. Like Probably. they, if you put like a timer on like a red light that shows when it's turning green, stress levels drop dramatically then when it's just like you're just staring at the red light waiting for it to turn Maybe it green, turns green. Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay that's just like interesting. An, an interesting interesting psychological study but yeah the the stress of not knowing what's going to happen is oftentimes yeah, the it most stressful part from Like
2: two years in jail to like hundred thousand fine to what it actually was and it was just like for god's sake if like a rewind i wouldn't have even stressed about it but yeah
1: how much resources did the government spend <laughs> to collect your 55 dollars and fine right that seems well, like a very you, if, if, if inefficient you bribe, process
2: if you, if you pay the bribe which we didn't know how to do and we're trying to figure out then it's a lot lot more but that's the whole idea is you don't go through the stress i guess but i would yeah. paid the fine i just there was never an opportunity that was obvious to me that that was the spot to do it i didn't want to say hey how much for the bribe because that felt like i was going to get even more trouble and then i got even more money out of me so then but I, anyone that gets in that situation just say just Get a lawyer from the start. This is the problem. Like we get we get to the um, get to the jail, and they're using my friend's girlfriend to like translate to us. And I thought that her English was very good, but her she was getting stressed and pressured. And they basically say, made me sign something to say that I thought I was signing to say I was a witness to him possessing, uh, and that was it. And then it turns out I was signing to say that I was possessing, and I was like, "Fuck!" I didn't know I was signing that. And it's all really the, yeah. They just get you every angle, so that was pretty pretty stressful.
1: Yeah, the um, law is the law is a game. Get a pro to play the game for you. Yeah. So next
2: time, I would just say, I'm paying a fine. I'll get me a lawyer. I'm not talking to you until one of the two, and yeah. the fine, obviously. I'm using the right words.
1: Yeah. Um, but you're back. You go back to you go back to home and yeah. lowest point, lowest point of your life. When was this?
2: Oh, I don't know. Um, I want to say like 2017, but
1: I could be wrong. Yeah. So. Basically four years ago, four or five years ago. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. So what what and happened? Then, what happened next? LSD. <laughs> a lot of a lot of tripping.
2: Not a lot. Just one big one, really. Yeah, I mean, I tried mushrooms before that, and they were pretty mind opening. But this wasn't this with the LSD. It was more just like uh, a friend of mine wanted to go back to Thailand. I got involved in a staking company that wanted me to coach people. Because I was I was decent at poker. I didn't have necessarily that much money, but like I was good enough to coach people. And that's when I properly started coaching people. And then I basically one guy wanted to learn a lot more from me. Um, and one guy went to go to Thailand and I was like, don't want to go back to Thailand? I was like, if I never go back now, I'm never going to go back because I'm just going to be in a bad place. So I ended up moving from Bangkok to Pattaya. So Pattaya is more of the Gen area, but it's a lot. It, it, the advantage of Pattaya is... You can get anywhere in five minutes and like the traffic is like nothing, whereas Bangkok's like a massive city. And Pattaya is like 75% of the price of Bangkok, so it's a bit cheaper as well. How um, big so we is
1: Thailand from like coast to coast? Like how, how big of an island is it?
2: Uh, it's not an island. It's, it's not it's, an uh, island?
1: Wow. No, there's lots
2: of islands in Thailand that are quite I, I did very
1: know. poorly in geography in school. Now everybody knows <laughs> my dirty little secret.
2: It's pretty big. Um, I wouldn't be able to give you a good length comparison that you'd be able to relate it to. But
1: um, like driving from one end to the other, like how how many? The driving
2: from the middle to the south takes about twelve hours. Okay, so I imagine, and that's not fully south. So imagine you going fifteen hours both ways. So remember thirty hours long. Like
1: okay, that. yeah, so it's pretty so that's, significant, pretty big.
2: Yeah, uh, width-wise, I'm not sure. Obviously, it depends which part.
1: Um, All right, I don't don't need to go down the rabbit hole <laughs> too <laughs> long of the geography of, of Thailand. I was just curious as it. You know, is moving across the country. So Pattaya is not very,
2: very far from Bangkok. Pattaya is like an hour and a half drive. It's the mm-hmm. closest beach, um, which is probably why it's like the most built-up area. Uh, Pattaya, just short story, was where the Americans, the Americans after Vietnam, they would have their holidays when they're. What, I don't know what you call them. Like when you're in the army, and you get like a little holiday, but you're still away. Vacation. In Bangkok, pretty much. Yeah, you're. Yeah, you're, you're. You're off time or whatever. They go to Bangkok and then they drive to Pattaya. And the one thing the army guys want when they're off is the beach, girls, and booze. So the whole city just became girls and alcohol basically.
1: Yeah. And makes food. sense. Makes sense. Yeah.
2: So as a poker player, it was great because you've got a 24-hour city basically. It's like imagine Vegas without the casinos. Yeah. is that possible? But
1: yeah. It would just be a desert. <laughs> Vegas, <laughs> Vegas without the casino is just a blank desert. It's
2: basically, <laughs> bars, girls, and food is basically all it is. Maybe gotcha. some like gyms and some golf and beaches and
1: stuff to do, but that's pretty much it. Well, why was the LSD trip so transformative?
2: Um, I don't know because it's hard to remember it exactly. Um, but because I feel like I've grown a lot since then, but I felt like it put me in like a, uh, a reset. And that's the way I think about it. Like I think I'd been down a road of like hedonism and just enjoying myself. And I think that. I was like, you, I felt like I wasn't necessarily felt like I'd wasted anything, but I felt like I had so much potential that I just wasn't using that it kind of made me go, well, do you want to do it or not? And and it kind of gave me a little bit of the kick in the ass to kind of like go and, you know, actually do it. And so then I was just like, not really caring about my net worth, just enjoying myself to go, oh, I want to actually do something. Um, I think that's the main thing I got out of it, but it's hard to remember because you you know, you're on an eight hour trip and you probably, the probably bits that if we spoke about something, I'd be like, oh Yeah. There's this thing and there's that thing but they kind of they're kind of in there now if that makes sense yeah, Hold sure. storage
1: it um changed your trajectory though you
2: yeah absolutely i felt like I was, that was probably the lowest and it was like the nice bounce off if that makes sense yeah um, the
1: upswing after the downswing
2: yeah and so it's in thailand seven thousand pound net worth and then i think over the next three to four months got a house in thailand rented it with like four guys uh, had a great time, but was now spinning and like coaching people and running a stable. And I was running a stable through a company that basically provided the funds. And I got like 20% off the top, which then you know, I would give to some of the coaches that would help do the work. So it wasn't like massive. We got a few tournament opportunities off the back of that as well. Uh, that's why I was coaching my brother quite a lot. My brother started doing really well in tournaments on the back of him getting a lot better at cash. I was getting a lot better at cash because I was coaching people, like you say, like you're just learning more and understanding things better. And then we ended up hiring a new coach who was like, all right, who's going to take us to the next level? And that was probably, this guy is probably the best coach you ever had by accident. (laughs) (laughs) How'd you find him? Uh, He reached out to me when I was in Bangkok and he was actually in the Nick Howard, what did he have then? He had like a staking group, right?
1: Yeah, Poker Um, poker Detox.
2: I think it was pre-Poker Detox. I don't think it was called that at the time.
1: Uh, I Um, I know the name of their products their products are like ether and night vision and stuff like that. Yeah, but I, but I, I can't remember a, the name of his stable before then.
2: Yeah. So it was like maybe pre detox or whatever it was at the time, but he was like big into Nick Howard stuff. Yeah. And he was working alongside Nick Howard and this guy was like pretty obsessed. And this guy basically went from like zero to like pretty high stakes, pretty fast. And he was when he posted his fire in a zoom graph for like eight big blinds over like hundred thousand hands. I was like, even if that's variance, it's like really, really high. And it was a really sick red line. And someone that I'm just generally interested to talk to anyway. So this company was like that I was working with were like happy to provide, to pay for his hours uh, of coaching. And I was like, well, it's a free world anyway. Let's learn some stuff. And I learned quite a bit because by accident, Can you say
1: the name of, of the player? His name was Crybaby.
2: Crybaby. C- yeah, C-R-A-I, baby. He's now doing bundles for BBZ. He's the new cash game guy for BBZ, which is funny because there's a BBZ story in my story as well, I guess. Um, and uh, so... Two of the really, really cool things that he taught me, which sounds so simple, was just like, he'd show me one guy who I thought was a like really good at poker and he'd show me another guy who I'd say was like bang average at poker. And then like this winning, this really sick guy is actually not even winning or winning like two BBs because he just punts off his stack and just does things that he would count as punts. Whereas this guy is playing super side, no punting, winning at like six BBs because poker is boring. He's play properly and let the money come to you. And I was like, and that was a bit of a revelation for me at the time. So he started doing this thing called Punt Watch we're post our three biggest losing pots each day to him. And that was so insightful because the first week you're just like, that's a punt, that's a punt, that's a punt. And then in week two, you're like, well, oh, that one's kind of a punt. That one may be a punt. That one is a punt, though. And then week three, you're like, these aren't punts anymore. And then you're almost like your, your win rate didn't come out of you getting a better poker. It came from you just like playing so much more solid. And just like, I don't want to stack off. I do not want to stack off. Oh, I have to stack off. And like, oh, but that's fine. And this one's fine. I remember the one hand that he said was a punt that I blew on my head was something like. Guy opens like, uh, the board is like seven, six, five or six, five, four. And the guy's got like three deuce and stacks off blind on blind. And the guy, and and over calls it a punt. And I'm like, well, you got a straight, what are you supposed to do? You got like the second nut. Oh no, he had seven, three and eight, eight, sevens are straight, eight, sevens are nuts and seven, three second nuts. And the guy stacks off with seven, three blind on blind on this board. And he goes, well, this is a huge punt. And I was like, well, how is this a punt? And he goes, well, think about it. He goes, It's 6 by 4 You've bet very big on the flop. He's raised you, and you've now 3-bet him, and he hasn't called. He's gone all in. So let's just think about that. He's raised the flop. Yes, he may raise you with, like, two pairs, sets, straights, whatever. But when you 3-bet him, he's just that, because of how many straights you have and the fact that he's got 16 combos of straights too, he's now going to start flattening all his two pairs and sets. So when he goes all in, you're dead. And you're like... Oh, fuck you, right? And then it just goes, you just kind of get out of that attitude. And this, a lot of people probably would have seen this in some of my streams as well, because I've made some semi ridiculous folds. Um, it's just like when, when you start breaking poker down and you start you start getting out of your head of like, I've got the second nuts, it's time to go broke. And you go, wait, what does this guy actually have? He's just got it. Like, okay, because there's so many times, even against professionals, we go, he's just got this hand. Like, and I don't want it to be true, but it is true. And if I'm playing, if I'm solving against the fact that he's got this hand, what does my hand want to do? Defaults. I don't yeah.
1: hate it, but it's true. And like some of my most, I'll use this in quote, genius bluffs involving like capped ranges and blockers, where it's like a bet, three bet jam on the river um, against a rag, get snapped. <laughs> like they just get snapped by a hand that's like, wow. They Definitely like they should have folded. It. It's just like they just didn't even think about it. Like they they just yeah. didn't even they just said, oh, this is About the strength nuts. of my hand the and nuts. there's nothing that I can do. And I, I just realized like, wow. So like, it's okay to never be bluffing in spots against people who don't care that you're never bluffing. And actually, yeah. if you were to program it in the solver that you're never bluffing, it would fold. It would tell you not to do that
2: as well. <laughs> it would
1: t- yeah. It would tell you not to call with the hand, the second nuts, right? If you program it to only have the nuts. Um, yeah. But yeah. It's... It's interesting to me. I had a I was doing a mindset session a couple months back with a student and he was telling me how like he he punted in a hand or whatever and we we're talking about it and then like he's like I don't understand like another hand went down he's like how does he do this? How does he call? And I'm like you just showed me your punts. You're talking about punting yourself, right? Like it's baked into everybody's win rate that they're going to punt and it's also baked into their win rate that they're going to have off days, they're going to feel bad, they're going to be angry, they're going to make mistakes everybody's dealing with the same fucking emotional cycle that you are. And it's easy to imagine that you're the only one feeling it. You're the only one making yeah. these mistakes. The reality is like everybody is across the board, which basically just means if it's baked into everybody's win rate, then doing less of that automatically increases it's win so rate. so big.
2: I like, it, it just took my win rate from like one or two bigs. to like, I mean, I want to say... Close to seven. There's so of just like cleaning up this stuff and being so overzealous about it. But yeah, you can probably take it too far, but I don't think people take it far enough. Some of these situations happen. And like, I don't know if you know about this hand, but I've got this one semi-famous hand on YouTube where I, I fold top set or second set, and it's like the second nuts. Have you? Uh, do you know? It was like a,
1: tens. It was like a short. I, I was looking through it. Right. Flop was yeah. like 10, seven, deuce. Turn king. Turn went bet three bet.
2: Sim, similar. It was. Uh, I've got jacks. I open cut off. He three bets big blind. I want to say 300 bigs deep yeah flat um the flock comes like king seven deuce check check uh turn jack he bets okay. big yeah on the jack of flush draw i three bet sorry raise he three bets me i'm like fuck What the fuck can he have to three bet me on the turn
1: right and i mean like the thing is you're at such depth too that like now yeah, the mistake
2: becomes even bigger
1: right from, the- the six bets going in and there's a seventh bet in this pot that's increasing exponentially. And yeah. the reality is like, I think in deep stack poker, players don't really understand the consequences of playing their strategy and their ranges. And they end up at like the six bet with very few combos and they don't leave room to have any extra hands with this, with the seventh, seventh bet. And like that really just agree. makes uh, for some extremely exploitable play. You can actually go back to um, a mistake that fish tend to make: uh, not three betting enough pre-flop. What happens when they do that is they have a high SPR and not not enough combos, which means they tend to three bet linear. And like, then they just play their hands straight forward. So like you check the flop, they check, check a flop. They pretty much have ace king because like they don't have a ton of combos when they go bet, bet, bet. They pretty much have overpairs because they don't have enough combos, which is like how in the early 2000s, you know, set mining was like a thing. And that's just because like, no matter what happens, like their strategy is going to be exploitable in one of two ways. Either a they overfold by folding out all their hands that they continue with or B, they overcall by calling with all the hands, and fish exactly. just tend to overcall. Um, so it's actually like a similar mistake, just deeper in the decision tree.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And I just think that when we get that much deeper as well, like the 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 dollar value of the mistake is so much bigger as well. Like, okay, so I call this three bit on the turn. Which she has if he's bluffing correctly is like the the bluffs are going to be like the the suited combo draws of like ace queen suited or queen ten suited that
1: he probably like, bets on well, the I'm flop not
2: going against that anyway
1: yeah that that he probably just bets on the flop um, yeah exactly i mean it's also it, it it also reflects on their strategy too that their strategy is probably not so great if you know they're folding out the second uh, second nuts on the turn, like a, a set, right? Like that's a very highly exploitable strategy that they're deploying. And I mean,
2: it is rare though, I guess, at these zoom stakes to get this deep against red on red, where you're going to have a turn three bet range. Right. Um, and, 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 and I, I think, think it is still reasonable um, to do it with Kings, assuming that the other guy's always going to stack off with Jacks because it's like, Oh, because I'm just like, Oh, well, you know, I don't three bet a lot, but if he's got Jackson, I want to get all the money, and he's never going to fold, so here we go.
1: Yeah, it, I mean, it, it is. It's just, yeah, poker's a complicated game, and we're talking about experienced players that basically are not super experienced playing three hundred big blinds deep, and three hundred big blind poker is just a different game than a hundred big blind I poker. Love solving
2: that one,
1: yeah, best best of luck. Um, yeah, so we're actually we're actually way up. Over time, um, and we're not even to the end of your story. Let's talk about let, let's wrap up the end of your story, and then we'd be happy to have you on again sometime in the near future. We can throw down for round two and ask you my the typical CPG questions.
2: Okay, uh, end of the story. Where was I? Um,
1: yeah, you, so you I'm were tired. you stumbled upon the, the future BBZ coach.
2: Uh, yeah. So then he's helped me a lot. Um, But weirdly, he's not doing that great himself. Um, up up and down, at least. I don't know if it's a mental game thing or whatever. But the things he was teaching me were then rubbing off on me, and I'm and I'm taking them in, and I'm like, oh yeah, good. And I, I'm applying into my game. So I'm almost taking bits of him, and I'm leaving other bits on. Like, okay, I don't need that, bit. I'm I'm, I'm going to use this bit, and I'm going to figure this bit out because he was quite a deep teacher. He's more like he he was the kind of teacher. Who was like, I want to teach you to think about the game yourself, and not just go see about this and do this. He's like, oh, why do you that? Why do you this? And that really helped me thinking about the game properly not long after that ended up getting staked in macau and then macau was just like first few trips reasonable and then ended up spending the whole year there in 2019 i made about 1.2 1.25 mil um displaying in like the yeah just just i was just i was primed for it uh prime from displaying live poker for the early parts of my career in casinos so i wasn't alien to live i was primed because my game was the sharpest I'd ever been. I was primed because the, anyone that beats in Zoom is better than most of the live rigs in that arena. So I was winning in the games, even if it's just a small win rate, before the fish shut down, which was cool because winning in a 100 to game before the fish is down, even if it's two dollars an hour, I'm like sick, <laughs> $200 an hour, <laughs> you know what I mean? So like, uh, so that was cool. Um, that was basically how I spent all of 2019 to the point where I like cleared my 100k makeup from the apps and then span up and then COVID happened. I was like, oh got a pile of money now. And then I just basically started focusing on, um, started a YouTube for fun, um, started trying to figure out passive investments and stuff like that. So I've got two condos here and I've got a piece of land where I'm building three houses on and that's it. That's where I'm at now.
1: Look at you You're spreading, spreading around, making more investments. Yeah. You full fledged adult spinning, <laughs> spinning, spinning. Retirement. Um, what, what, what's, what's next for the Ginge? Uh,
2: I've got, a, I've got my website launching soon because I ran the academies and I basically condensed them into a video format now. So I'm going to... a website's probably going to launch early next week. Um, then I'm obviously stayed by Gigi po- sorry, stayed sponsored by GG Poker now. So I'm going to be doing all the YouTube content, trying to grow that channel. I'm starting a new channel because my blog stuff doesn't really correlate to my poker audience too well all the time. There is a core audience that want to see it, but not necessarily like all the poker people. So I want to have one channel just for poker. The one's going to be more like lifestyle investing uh training all that kind of stuff i'm training for a bodybuilding show end of next year so that's like a big priority i've got to get this land i'm talking to architects now to build all the land and so i reckon i'll get all the land done do the bodybuilding show so fitness is ticked investments are ticked uh i'll figure out how much i'm gonna i might take on other investors for this land project because it's gonna get pretty big i'm gonna figure that after the website's launched and do that and then basically the way i probably want to spend my life is having this passive income and then maybe just living in Thailand for three months, living in Bali for three months, living in Vegas for three months, living wherever after three months. I've got a dog now, so I'm going to take my dog with me. And then, um, then yeah, I just I, I like the idea of traveling. I like not traveling the way normal people do it, where they just kind of like go and have a look at things. I like to live in a place. I, I enjoy that a lot more than, like, so I want to go live in, like, Colombia and Mexico and Brazil for a few months and just, like, really see what I like. And then, like, I'm want i I'm getting World Series envy, so I might just learn tournaments. I'm playing the World Series next year, even though it's going to stall.
1: Same, same. I'm getting all the FOMO from the WSOP. Um, Tell me, you mentioned a a BBZ story, by the way. Uh, (laughs) That that was a a nugget that I didn't investigate and would feel sad if I didn't ask you the question. What's the BBZ story?
2: So when I first started getting bigger on YouTube and Twitch, BBZ contacted me and said, would you like to do a bundle for us? Um, Which I was like, not too sure about because I was doing my academy, and for me to do a course, I wanted it to be it's hard for me to like the, the reason people know me at poker is because I simplify things and I try and explain things in like a, a way that people can understand them even though it's maybe a complicated thing because I feel like I can do that because I, I try and understand it myself and then I make it simplified for myself so that's kind of like my my niche in poker if that's if that's the right way of, of explaining it so he wanted me to come up with this course that was like let's say let's say an upswing to a thousand dollar course. That's what BBZ model is. They want to do like a thousand dollar course, but they want to sell it for a hundred dollars and there's mass sell them. Cause they think that's the right way to do it. You can get less pirates. You can be able to sell more. It's a more of an impulse buy, etc. Um, And I was doing my Academy and it was like the first or second batch of my Academy. And I was like, well, the problem I've got is if I give you all this for a hundred dollars, I'm not, cannibalizes,
1: to cannibalizes yeah, your own I business. I don't want
2: to cannibalize this. And they're kind of like, well, why don't you use the Academy material? You can do that there. You can do that there. And I was like, Maybe, and they they convinced me to do it. And we came with a bundle, which was good. Um it was too cheap, but I was like okay with it. So my business partners once the academy was rolling, were like less okay with it. Um, there was there were some bits that some advanced stuff that was missing that I think is pretty powerful in the academy. and obviously the Academy, they were getting like one on one time with me and all that kind of stuff. So the academy value was still definitely there, but you know this one hundred dollars course is probably like a five hundred dollars course. You know, if I was going to monetize it and as a one off type thing, um, they release it and they take it off after like an hour. Uh, and I was like, sick. We like broke the servers. So many people have bought this. It's this amazing. I'm going to make loads of money. This is the greatest idea ever. And then he basically says that uh, he's taking it down because he um, didn't really give me a good reason. And I was a bit miffed and I was half asleep because we're different time zones. I was like, oh, okay. And then so many people kept asking me. And I couldn't really give him a good reason. He's just like, oh, don't worry about it. I'll just blow over. And I'm like, hey, but I kind of want to know what, what's good. Like, what, why? And then it was, um, uh, he basically said that, uh, well, he didn't really give me a reason. So in my head, I'm just thinking about it. I'm like, what the fuck? And then some people are talking to him. I'm like, you guys are saying this, like, what, what, why do you think he's taking it down? And because uh, I thought it was great because like, they don't have a cash game guy. I was like, I was the cash game guy, blah, blah. And then um, I was drunk one night on Twitter and this is where I'll kick off. Um, I was like, I'm drunk, ask me anything. And I was wasted. Like, uh, <laughs> we're playing a game of FIFA where I was taking a shot every time someone scored. I think I lost like 22 7. So I'm like Ooh, 22 shots. Yeah. But yeah. It was, it was bad. And then, um, and then someone goes, What happened with BBZ? I, I got asked it like every stream. And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I really don't know. And then, uh, and the reason pe- other people had said to me, and I was probably too drunk. So I, pro- I probably wouldn't have said this if I was sober. I was like, I think that BBZ didn't like my course because I simplified everything. And I made all the complicated bullshit that he comes out with not sound as good. And I feel like I took away from his brand because you can't really sell extra complicated shit. Like, Oh, you're going to need this bundle now because my bundle was enough for you to go, that's cash game done type thing. Like work on the rest yourself. And that's what I said. And he blew the fuck up about that. He was really mad. Um, he, he basically then roasts me on Instagram on his story saying, um, Oh yeah, change or pay anyone to look at his course and tell me how good it is. And, uh basically we didn't like it because the way played blind on blind and the blind and blind so it was so shit that i gave it to someone else and they said it was shit so there's no way i could put my name on that content and that was basically that happened that got posted on youtube and i was like what the fuck and i and then um i don't know if i can tell you the rest um but basically i think it sent a load of stuff this is this is escalating right i it sent a load of stuff about bbz and all the shit that like makes him look bad. And I won't reveal what it is because this is not fair. Um sure. and uh all this BBZ stuff was like listed. And I was like, all right, well, if I guess if he keeps going, I'll just post this stuff because I didn't care. Like I really I, I was the point, like, I'm just gonna release this course for free. Like, I don't care, people can watch it. Um and then he contacted me and goes, All right, I reacted badly. Uh, should we just calm this down? And I was like, whoa you, you you're one up me here, like you, you you you've got the last say, like it's, it's, if we calm this down, like it's Kind of not fair, but my business partners and the only reason—the only reason I backed down was because my business partner said it's just going to look bad for both of us if you carry on, and I was like, "Don't want to," but I did. I backed down. Ironically, now the cash game guy is the guy that used to coach me, <laughs> and I think he's a fantastic coach. So anyone that buys that package is going to get really good value.
1: It's it's hard. I, I'm actually in the same boat as you. Um Simplicity on the other side of complexity. I think that.
2: I think, I think it's a reflection I, that you understand it more than most people do, honestly.
1: Well, the training, the training paradigm that exists in the market today is from a very complex standpoint. Whenever you actually uh try to make a course or dive deep into poker strategy, you learn that like top-level information is pretty fucking useless. Like top-level solve just going through it is very it's not very useful. You have to refine it and make it make sense. And then also organize it in a way that is actually like executable, that people can like use this shit and actually make money doing it. And like, that's very hard. So- there's a law of uh, production and basically law of production states that at each step in a production process, a thing gains in value. And if you imagine like say, you know, you have a chicken, right? And the chicken lays an egg. So that egg has a value. It gets boxed up with 12 other eggs sent somewhere else. The egg increases in value. Like it's worth a little bit more. When this egg gets cracked, made into an omelet, now it that step of the production, it's worth a little bit more. Um, then it gets seasoned, then it gets put on a plate, uh, gives given to a customer, and that's like its maximum value. And, and I look at poker strategy in the same way, that whether you're studying using data, whether you're studying using solvers, whatever it is, that first output that you're looking at is unrefined and the lowest value in the production process. As it gets filtered and refined... Um, into something that's actually useful, the end product is extremely valuable and also pretty simple, um, which confuses lots of people. People don't really want to believe in simplicity. People
2: don't want to think poker is simple because they don't want to think that that's the reason. If, if they see poker as a simple game and they're still losing at it, it's very hard for them to accept. And that one of the biggest things that I had challenges with some of my students is kind of going, and hey, this one guy, I almost wanted to shake him like. Worker is not as hard as you're trying to make it. Yeah, I think we're on the same page completely. I completely agree with everything you just said. I think that that is the biggest... I I, 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 You know, we talk about being in the information age. I think we're now in the too much information age, whereas people don't pay me now to give them information because they can find probably 90% of what I'm going to say on YouTube somewhere, but they pay me now to refine it for them and give them what they need to hear and the bits that I've basically... What's the word? Um, uh, kind of put together for them, curated for them, and put it in a package that makes it make sense. That's realistically what I'm ultimately being paid for now is for, for giving them the more digestible format of the content because we're, we're in the too much information
1: age. People want to feel clever. And I think that using some ultra complex strategy that like break even breaks even, like ultimately their goal is to feel clever and smart. It's yeah. not to win money when you should be playing poker to win money. That seems to me to be the most obvious goal First wins, of what we're doing. One on one. Like we're, we're playing poker to make money, not to seem smart to everybody. Um, I, I believe that eventually that's the way all training will go because it's the only sensible thing. It's the only sensible reality.
2: Yeah, I, I, I often debate just about releasing all my content on, on YouTube for free and it's going, here you go. <laughs> I'll tell you what would be interesting having a conversation with about, maybe not this time, next time. Is how you think everything we just said relates to other industries?
1: Yeah, uh, I, I think there's a lot of overlap. I, I think
2: absolutely. Once you we, start thinking in first principles and about how we're actually doing things in poker, I think it absolutely overlaps to everything.
1: Yeah, something that will like set me off is like somebody will post a hand and like, oh, this is what solver, blah 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 blah, and it's like I, the question that the question that I I propose is. Are you playing poker against a solver, or are you playing poker against a human? And from which perspective do you think will lead to more success? I I imagine the human. They don't like that. People don't. No, people don't like it, but... Facts is facts. I mean, debatable. I guess that's my opinion. I'm stating as fact, um, but I believe very strongly in my opinion. Happy to be challenged by anybody in the industry. To
2: well, that's that's the thing. Like proof's just in the pudding, man. Like proof's just in like the the guys playing the highest stakes are not yeah. the solver embosses. You know what I mean? Like ultimately, poker is about making the most money possible, and the best poker player in the room is the guy that has the most money from playing poker. Then Dan Bilzerian's better than all of us.
1: Uh, does his money come from poker, though? That, that's the debatable I mean, topic. If you
2: believe the stories are true, then he is. Like, if he's cultivated his image and got into these sick games and he's played just enough poker to be good, better than these guys, then he's ultimately... That's ultimately more of a skill in theory than some of this other stuff. Like, you know what I mean? Like they, even to, to some extent, other poker players, like you've gone too far.
1: You've gone too far saying like, Bulzarian's the best poker player. That's too that's a step I mean, too my, far. <laughs>
2: my, my personal opinion, the best poker player ever is, is Dol Brunson, just because of like longevity and like I think that the way he must look at the game must be similar to the way we're talking about it now. But like you see people like Helmuth, I I just I record I just recorded all of season twelve of poker after dark of me reviewing all the hands. I'm watching Phil Hammer play and I'm pulling my hair out, going, This is one like something like you go to Joe Blogs who's never heard of nose poker on the street and they go, Yeah, Phil Hammer's amazing. And I'm watching this going, This is like a, he's not even, he's not even being 25 Zoom online. Yeah, he's in this game. Like, and he's winning because all these idiots are just going, I'm going to stack you, Phil. And he's like, Yeah, come on. <laughs> oh, I've got aces again. Sick.
1: Well, you get a bunch of, Players that are losing money in a game, and most people are going to make most competent players will make money at the end of their lives playing in those games, and so it becomes also a game within a game of playing big stakes and getting those prime opportunities.
2: That's that's another conversation rabbit hole we could go down as well.
1: Yeah, for sure. Let's. Uh, I think for now we've gone down all the rabbit holes. Like this has felt good. It's been a great great conversation. Um, we've been on for about two hours. Feel sad that it's ending. But we definitely have more, more episodes in the future and more things okay. to, to discuss for sure. Uh, but before we part ways, it, when, when your website gets launched, what's going to be the URL? And then where can the Chasing Poker Greatness audience find you uh, on the World Wide uh, Web? I'm, I'm
2: Ginge Poker and everything. So YouTube, uh, Twitch, Ginge Poker, U- and Instagram. But YouTube is where I post mainly, or I'm trying to drive traffic to. I'm my website is gingepoker.com. Um, so yeah, thank you very much for letting me plug that and thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it too.
1: Yeah, it's my pleasure and disclaimer here at the end. I, I'm not trying to start trash talking trash with any of the poker training sites that exist in the world. So <laughs> <laughs> save, save save your emails. But this is the way that I think about poker training and how I personally approach it. Um, in the way that and we happen I, to be on I the think, same wavelength. And we happen to be on the same wavelength. So that said. Jinj, been great having you on. Thank you for your time and your energy. We'll talk soon.
2: Cheers. Thank you again.
0: Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to chasingpokergreatness.com to get the newsletter, join the Greatness Village community, book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.